Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. So if you have a desire inside of you to be righteous, and if you're growing in righteous action, righteous life, that's evidence that Jesus is in you. If not, then... Jesus might not be in you. If you don't have any desire to be righteous or to be growing or to know him, then you need to question, is Jesus really inside of me? And that's the simplicity of it. Now, Jesus said these words just on this topic of righteousness. Jesus said it's in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are they, or how happy are they, that hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, you know what it is to hunger, and you know what it is to thirst, Right? But he says that the hunger and thirst is for righteousness, that there's a drive, there's a deep desire inside of me that I want to be right. I hate the sinfulness of myself and of my flesh, and I want to be free of it. I don't want it in there anymore. I want righteousness. I want to be clean. I want my actions to be right. I want my thought life to be right. I want my attitudes to be right. I want my work ethic to be right. I want every area of my life to be right, and I'm hungry for it. There's a drive and a desire like, you know, like a boxer has to win a title belt. I'm hungry. There's a desire. I'm driven. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 20, Jesus said these words. He said, don't think, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle, the smallest marking, shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I feel like I'm competing with Joe Faust. Thank you. (laughs) Someone's phone. (laughs) Uh, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees positionally because of what Jesus has done for us. But what Jesus is saying is that the law that required righteousness, that law, we are no longer bound to it in a covenantal standard because of Jesus, but the standard still stands. In other words, the righteousness that God defines throughout the pages of Scripture is what righteousness is. And that is the standard by which we measure ourselves when we're talking about what it means to do righteousness. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus said this. He said, but you seek first, first, foremost, primal in your life, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added to you. You guys know the verse. That's one of those ones that you're like, oh, that's in the Bible? I've heard that my whole life, you know? Because that's, part, that's to be the first thing in us, is that we're to be seeking after a righteous life. The Apostle Paul said this, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. He said, Know ye not 
that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, be not deceived. Now, this isn't positional. This is practical. These are behaviors. Watch this. He says, neither fornicators nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, that's the homosexual, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, use your imagination, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And and he's telling us, he's saying, listen, this faith looks like something. If Jesus really is in us, then we're moving in a direction that looks like something in the outwardness of our lives. Notice what Paul says later, Romans chapter 14, verse 17. He says, for the kingdom of God is not meat nor drink. It's not, oh, do you eat? Do you drink? You know, all this kind of, he says, it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. So you cannot separate salvation, positional righteousness, from practical righteousness. The two things go together. Now, having said that, there are counterfeit practical righteousness is. Is that that proper English? (laughs) There are counterfeit righteousness things. There is self-righteousness. And what self-righteousness does and why it's counterfeit is what self-righteousness does is that it makes other human beings the standard whereby I measure what is right and what is wrong. And the problem with a self-righteousness and and making human behavior the standard is that it's always relative to the changing values of a culture, a society, or a time. So there are certain things that are considered righteous— in modern American culture that God says are an abomination. And so there's a conflict between the two righteousnesses. This is a tough word. <laughs> you know, maybe we should put an I at the end and just make it plural in a different way. You know, who, who has the authority when humanity defines what righteousness is? Who's the one who has the authority to draw the line between this is right and this is wrong? And what we see happening in our day at an unprecedented rate is that we see that line that defines what righteousness is, we see it dropping like it's falling off a cliff. You know, what used to be considered an abomination now is celebrated. You know, and, and that, so, so how do you define that if self-righteousness, well, I'm righteous because I'm better than you, or I'm better than them. That doesn't make a person righteous. That's a counterfeit righteousness. It makes me feel like I'm righteous, but it's not real. The other kind is what I want to call a ragged righteousness, and what a ragged righteousness is, is, is what, I guess, what Jesus would call a righteous rapper, meaning that I'm righteous in my public behavior and that everything that everyone sees on the outside looks righteous, but what's really going on on the inside is a completely different story. The rapper doesn't reflect what's going on inside my heart. Listen to what Jesus has to say about that. It's Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. He says, Take heed, be careful, that you do not your alms, alms are good deeds, before men, in front of men, to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when you do your, your good deeds... Do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Verily, I say unto you, they have their reward. But when you do your alms, your good deeds, don't let your left hand know what your right hand does, that your alms may be in secret, 
And your father, which sees in secret, himself shall reward you openly. And when you pray, you shall not be as the hypocrites are. The hypocrite is the one who's got two, a face on the outside and something else on the inside. For they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, enter into your closet, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father which is in secret, and your Father which sees in secret shall reward you openly. Listen to what Jesus says to a group of uh, hypocritical religious people that had a wrapped righteousness, a ragged righteousness. He says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were the people that were the standard. If you want to be righteous, you've got to be like those guys. And Jesus looks at him and he says, you guys look righteous. You're hypocrites. For you make clean, watch this, the outside of the cup and the platter. That's the wrapper. But within, they're full of extortion and excess. You blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you, for you are like unto whited sepulchers. A sepulcher is a tomb, a painted white tomb, which indeed appear beautiful on the outside, but within are full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within, on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. And that's a ragged righteousness, meaning I've put clothing over the unrighteousness that, that resides within my heart so as to appear to other people as though I'm more righteous than I really am. Now, you know what Isaiah said about this? He said that your most righteous acts, actions, are like filthy rags before God. We, we can deceive people all day long into thinking that we are something that we're not. But Jesus is saying that that's not true righteousness, what other people see. Now, those are counterfeit righteousness. There is a true righteousness for the Christian, for the sinner. There is a true righteousness. And that is, Jesus describes back in verse uh, 26 of chapter 23, just the passage that we just read. Listen to what he says. He says, cleanse first, means primary, before anything else, before you change the behavior, before you think about what you need to stop doing or start doing. He says, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, and then what's going to happen? That the outside of them may be clean also. Listen, guys. The heart is upstream. Actions, behaviors, and consequences are downstream. Meaning that if I want something on the outside of my life to be a certain way, it has to start in the deepest place, upstream. And so Jesus says that true cleansing, true righteousness is something that has to begin in the heart and then it works its way outside, not the other way around. You can't start on the outside and hope that it's going to work its way in. It doesn't work like that. That would be like putting something in a stream and hoping that it will end up at the mouth of the river. It doesn't go that way. Things go downstream. The heart is the source. And so Jesus is saying you have to cleanse at the source if you want to be clean on the surface. So true righteousness 
starts, listen, when we become positionally righteous. When we receive Jesus as the Lord of our lives, we become righteous in standing and cleansing happens in the heart. Now, that's not where it ends. It doesn't end there. Most people think, okay, well, I'm saved. I raised my hand. I came forward. I'm part of the church. Therefore, I'm righteous. Yes, positionally. Practically, I don't think so. (laughs) What happens then? True righteousness. First of all, I have to allow an openness, meaning I have to be willing to expose and, and see, look at, let light shine upon the true contents of my character. I have to be willing to embrace the fact that I'm sinful, that I'm, that I'm messed up, that I'm dirty. I have to be willing to confront and embrace what's inside of me. That's, there's an openness to it. I don't want to hide it. I'm not going to just pretend it's not there. I'm not going to bury it. I'm, gonna, I'm willing. I'm open. There's an openness. After the openness, then I have to be willing to an examination. Okay, the Bible says, Psalm 119, 105, it says that thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It says also, it says that your commandment is a lamp and the law is a light. It's a searchlight. And so what happens is as I allow the word of God to expose my behavior, now that my heart's open to it, I'm willing, and I see, God, you say this is right, But when I allow your word to be compared to my life, I see that I'm not right. Now I am examining, I'm allowing an examination, and and I'm evaluating to a point where I conclude there's something twisted in here. And I'm willing to admit it, I'm willing to embrace it. And so I'm going to honestly acknowledge and own the painful truth that I'm not righteous. Your word, your spirit is convicting Your truth is declaring that I am not righteous, I am undone, I'm twisted, and I'm open. At that point, okay, the next thing is now there's confession and repentance. I should have put it on the screen, but it's 1 John 1, 9. And it says this, it says that if we confess our sins, the word confess means to say the same thing. Homo logeo. Homo is same. Logos is word. So same word. I'm confessing. I'm saying the same thing about my sin that God says about my sin. I'm agreeing with God concerning what's going on inside my heart. That's confession. Lord, I am a sinner. Lord, I am an adulterer. Lord, I am a drunk. Lord, I am a jealous, bitter, judgmental, person. However deep the sin is that God is dealing with at that season of your life, you agree with God and say, Lord, I am what you say I'm not supposed to be. I'm confessing my sin. It says if we confess our sin, that he then, Jesus, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Cleanse means to purify. And so as I confess my sin and turn from it, he by his spirit forgives it and washes it. He cleanses it in transformation, not reformation. Transformation begins to take place within my heart. He takes out the filth that was at the source and he replaces it with something that's new on the inside. And it's usually demonstrated or there's proof of it because now there's a vulnerability in my life wherein I'm I'm willing to even own it. I'm willing to say, yeah, I used to be 
a greedy womanizer, whatever. I, I, and I'm willing. I'll own that. Like I can, I can talk to you freely about it. I can talk about the struggle. I can talk about where I fell. I can talk about the messes that I made. I can just be open about it because it's changed. It's different. But that's true righteousness. It doesn't happen in a day. In fact, it doesn't happen in a year. It doesn't happen in a decade. It happens moment by moment as we walk with him and we allow him access and let what's been put on the inside positionally to work its way to the surface through faithful openness, examination, honesty, confession and repentance, and then transformation as I allow him to change me with honesty. And, and you know how you know when that's really at work in your life? Is when there's a, a little bit of a question mark as to whether or not you're really saved. Remember, remember when Jesus said that there was two people in the temple? There was, a, there was a religious person in their robes, and they prayed like this. Thank you, God, that I'm not like that guy. And then there was another guy who wouldn't even so much as lift up his eyes, and he just kind of smote his own breath, and he said, Lord, have mercy on me, a, a sinner. And Jesus said, which one of these two do you think went away righteous? And he said it was the one who wouldn't even... Sub- See, when, true, when I'm truly righteous, there's a little bit of a question mark. I wonder, am I even saved? See, if you walk around with the confidence like, yeah, yeah, once saved, always saved, I'm saved. Maybe you should worry. And if you walk around with this thing, it's like, I, I don't know. Like, I know what Jesus said, and I know, I know I believe. My faith is on him and not on me, but I just don't know. Sometimes the things that come out of this life come out of this heart. That's a safer, that's a safer person. You know, that's how you know. There's a sense of, almost of self-doubt. Now, you say, that's a long introduction. You said to open to James chapter 1, verse 1. <laughs> it's all right. Don't worry, the landing gear is about to come down. You're going to be like, what? <laughs> Why do we go through that introduction to the book of James? Because there's no book in the New Testament that is more centered on walking in righteousness than the book of James. Not positional righteousness, but practical righteousness. The agenda of the author is to move you and I into the mindset, into the, the action frame of saying, Lord, I want to pursue a life that looks on the outside what you have started on the inside. That's the agenda, and that's the purpose. That's the reason. Now, chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of James. We're not going to go any further than verse 1. And you'll see why, by way of introduction, James says this. So if you look with me at it, it says, James, did I, I did, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. Now, uh, the, the question, the first question that'll come up is, uh, who's James? You know, this guy, James, we're reading his letter. Who is he? There are three Jameses. What, what's up with the plurals today? James I, in the, in the New Testament. Uh, one, of course, is James of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. This is not that James. Uh, he was one of the apostles. He was the first one martyred. He was already dead by the time this letter was written. So we'll rule him out. He's not the author. The other James was another apostle who was known as James the Less or James the son of Alphaeus. And uh, probably the reason he's called James the Less is because he was either shorter or younger. <laughs> not because he was uh, stupider or, you know, less qualified. <laughs> you know? Um, but there was James, the son of Alphaeus. And then the third James uh, was, he's known as James the Just, who was the half-brother of Jesus. Now, between those two, 
We could spend a long time trying to figure out which one of them wrote the book of James, and it would probably be inconclusive, and it would be a total waste of time. So take your pick. It was either James, the son of Alphaeus, or James, the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, We don't know. It's not worth the time to know. But what is worth the time to know, to notice, is how he identifies himself. Is that he calls himself James, the servant of God. And that, to me, is probably one of the most remarkable phrases in the entire letter. The entire five chapters of James is probably right there in the very first sentence where he just identifies himself in that way. Because what he's basically uh, trying to put forth to us is that the whole entirety of his resume, everything that he wants you to know that qualifies him to write this and that should perk your attention to listen and make you interested is in the fact that he is nothing more than a servant of God. Now, I want you to just think for just a minute about what he could have written there. I mean, he could have written James, one of the original apostles. I'm interested in what you have to say. You're one of the original apostles. (laughs) He could have said, James, the half-brother of Jesus. I grew up in the same house as him. I want to hear what that guy has to say. I would read, I would go and buy his book. I'd subscribe on Audible just for that. That's worth it. James, who was there on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit first came and the church started. I'm interested. You got me. I want to listen. I mean, he he could have listed things. James, witness, eyewitness of every miracle that Jesus ever did, every word that Jesus ever said, ear witness of it. James, who was there in the garden. James, who who was there when, I'm, I'm in. I'm listening. You got my attention. He said, I don't care about any of that. I don't care if I was James the less or James the more. I don't, none, none of that matters. My identity, my resume, my authority, the reason you should listen to me is because I'm James, the servant of God. Meaning that his life and his walk with God had come to the point where the center of his identity and the center of everything that he was was bound up in the fact that he belonged to God. And nothing else at all mattered. A few generations ago, Bob Dylan I say few generations, those of you that are contemporaries of his, sorry, but <laughs> it was a few now. He, he wrote a song, and in the song, the lyrics were, everybody serves somebody. And he was absolutely right. Everybody serves somebody. And whatever it is that is the center of your life, the center of your identity, the thing that you identify the most clearly with, that is the thing that you serve. Your center is what you serve. So some people, they serve their job. If you were to say, who are you? Or if you were to say, what's the basis of your authority? You would say, well, I am the CEO of a, or I am a 20-year you know, veteran of, and, and that would be, that's the center of who you are, the, the seat of my authority, the reason why I, that's the center of my life. For some, it's their title and some, some thing at some other position. For others, they're defined by their hobbies. I'm, you know, Bill the Bowler or whatever. That's what I am. That's what I do, you know, and that's how you identify or by a talent. Some people, it's by an affection. You know, I'm Frank the, sh- sorry, Fred, I try to, that's totally generic, you know, the, the chef or whatever, and I identify, that's my center. Some people buy their vice. You know, I, I'm, I'm sorry with names, whatever, whoever, the alcoholic or the drunk or whatever, the, the center, whatever the center is, that's who I serve, whatever's on your resume. Now, listen, the goal of life as a Christian And the goal of discipleship 
is that we would come to the same place that James is, that, we, that the whole of our identity, all that we are, is that I'm nothing more than a servant of God. Now, we all say that, right? And we all are that. But not in the same way that James is calling himself the servant of God. He is saying that the seed of my very authority, the reason why, why my life counts for anything at all, the wholesome value of why I exist as a human being, is that I am a servant of God. That's all I've got. And if I am not that then everything else I could say that I am isn't really worth all that much. Even if it means saying one of the original 12. It pales in comparison of just saying that I am the servant of God. How does one become the servant of God? How does a disciple move from the place where their center is in something else to the place where they are the servant of God completely. Well, I'll tell you, it doesn't happen in a day, and it doesn't happen in a moment or even, even a week. It happens in a lifetime of relationship with God. I want to read to you a passage from Genesis chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse 21, that really illustrates what this means and how this happens. It says this. It says that Enoch... It says that Enoch lived 65 years and begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and he begat sons and daughters. The only descriptive statement concerning this man Enoch is it says that he walked with God after he had a son. Sons will do that to you. (laughs) And apparently uh, Methuselah had an effect upon uh, maybe just trying to spell his name or whatever, you know, pronounce it. But (laughs) something caused him to start walking with God, and he began to walk with God after this. All it says about him. And it says uh, that all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And watch this. And it says that Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, in the literal sense... Enoch didn't die. The New Testament confirms that. He was taken. We don't know. He was translated. He was, God just said, okay, let's go. And he was him and Elijah, two men in the Old Testament that that did not die. Uh, Enoch was one of them. But in this, there's an illustration of exactly what it means to walk with God and what happens when a person decides that the days of my year are 365 And the years of my life are however many God chooses. But every one of those days is going to be defined by walking with God. That's going to be the the aim, the ambition, the desire of my life is to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, to walk with him, to know him, to pursue him, to talk to him, to learn how to hear his voice, to understand who he is, to understand his purpose and agenda in the world for my life, for his church, for my generation, for my family. My desire, my aim and ambition is to know him. That's what I want with my life. I'm going to walk with him. And you know what happens when you walk with God day by day, day by day, day by day, year by year? You know what happens? Is that you become not. Every other aspect of your identity becomes swallowed up in just who he is and it doesn't even matter anymore. I used to be proud of the fact that I was a D1 champion, you know, whatever. Fill in the blank. I was never any one of those. It's just an example. (laughs) But that doesn't matter anymore. It's not not my life. It's not who I am. It's it's nothing. It's like dust. It's like it couldn't have been. It didn't matter. At the time, it was the most important thing in the world to me. 
the talents that I have, the things that I've achieved, the amount of money that I've made, the, 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 even the legacy, even what I've done with my family, even, you know, it, none, none of it matters. I, I, the more I walk with him, the more I know him, the more it's just a mirage. It's just nothing. It's dust. It just blows away. It's fleeting. But he's eternal. He lasts forever. That's who I want. That's who I want to be known as. There's nothing else. And you walk with him day by day by day by day by day. Every other thing that we could be centered on becomes swallowed up, and I just want to be a servant. I just want to know him. That's why, that's why I'm, that's, that's it. There's nothing else. He walked with God and was not. What did John say, John the Baptist? He said, he must increase, I must decrease. And as we allow him, what he started in the deepest place, we allow him to work it out as we pursue him, as we hunger and thirst after righteousness. All the other things are added and subtracted. The things that don't belong or the things that don't satisfy or the things that don't matter. It all gets swallowed up in him. And so the call of James to us here, even in, even in this opening statement, James, the servant of God, the call is, it's not about what you do. It's not about what your competence is. It doesn't matter how people see you on the outside doesn't matter what you have or attain. doesn't even matter about your legacy. All that matters is who you are as a person. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. To seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All the other things are added to him. I pursue him. I'm walking with him. That's what James is about. It's about how do I get myself into a, a mind frame and a directional frame where the pursuit of my life is to know him at all costs. I'm not trying to earn anything. That's all been done. It's taken care of. It's given. It's imparted on the cross. But I do want to know him. I want to walk with him. I want to be who he made me to be. It's not about what I do. It's not about what people see. It's not about my title. It's not about my competency. It's about my character. It's about who he's making me, what he's doing in me, and what is for his purpose. So we'll go through the book of James. Don't worry, we're not going to do it a verse at a time, <laughs> like we did this morning, just one verse. But, uh, uh, but that's, that's where we're headed. That's what he's doing. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.